This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. By one count, since roughly January, the the start of the pandemic, although, of course, it began in China in late 2019, there have been 5,000 preprints alone related to COVID-19. Preprints, of course, are the papers that get put up on uh, servers. They have not been peer-reviewed. You know, 5,000 just preprints, probably a comparable number of papers that have been actually published in journals. That's a fire hose that we're all trying desperately to drink out of. Sharon Begley is a veteran science journalist, and she's now turning her skills in interpreting the complexities of scientific research to helping the rest of us understand the complexities of the COVID-19 pandemic. And she does it with the tenacity of a beat reporter and the instincts of a storyteller. This is great to be able to talk to you today because you're such an extraordinary communicator. And that's what this show is all about. And I really look forward to the chance to talk to you. I saw this very interesting talk you gave where you were talking to scientists about how to talk to the press. And it was so interesting because... You could have been giving a talk at the Center for Communicating Science. What do you think are the main things that scientists have to remember when they talk to the press? The key thing is that you, the scientist, know just worlds more than I do and also worlds more than I can get into my story. Um, One of the frustrations I often have when I interview scientists is that I'll ask them what I think is a fairly simple question. And it's like pressing the go button as if I've asked them to please download everything you know about your entire field. Um, (laughs) and, And I feel bad about that because they're now spending a lot of minutes telling me something that probably is not going to make it into whatever story I'm doing. Well, we all have the tendency to get mired in the details of things we know deeply. That's that's one of the problems in knowing something deeply. Right. And, it, and it's admirable. And, and the reason, so the obvious question is, why don't I cut them off? Because I don't. <laughs> I think the answer to that is just um, 
eternal optimism that like maybe by minute three or seven or even God forbid 12, they will say one amazingly insightful or off the cuff or funny thing. And I don't want to, you know, squelch that from happening. But but really, you know, when you, the scientist, are speaking to a reporter, try to um, hear the question and answer the question. You're not a politician on Meet the Press. Really, you can answer the question. And you talked about having a goal before you even get on the phone. Right, because it helps channel and direct your thoughts, you being the scientist. Um, you know, at least in the work that I do, when I ask to interview somebody, I'm as crystal clear as crystal clear can be about what the heck I'm doing here. I will say that I want to talk to you about the paper that you just published, or I will say I want to talk to you about the paper that somebody else just published, or I'll say I'm doing a, I'd love to do a profile of you. And if they agree, um, you know, usually I explain that this entails, you know, how you grew up, how you became interested in science, um, obstacles along the way that you overcame. But if I'm saying, I want to talk to you about this paper that's coming out tomorrow in Nature, um, you know, just think about what the key finding of that paper is um, and try try to focus. Because again, everybody is hugely busy. And if you, the scientist, understand what I'm after, um, I think it will help you sort of arrange your thoughts better. So give me an example. Let me let me ask you, let me ask you the same question that you mentioned asking scientists. What got you interested in writing about science? Now give me a great story about that. Well, I'm not sure how great it is, but um, as an undergraduate, I did only college, never grad school. Um, I spent a lot of time with an experimental physics group. Um, I always loved physics um, and was really not that good at it, but I was pretty good at, you know, this broad thing called humanities, um, which included writing. Um, so having spent time with this experimental group, I noticed a couple of things. One, that experimental physics, um, high energy particle physics, was a group endeavor to the nth power, right? Um, these were groups of, uh, at that time, dozens, and as we've now seen, even hundreds of investigators. Um, and that just didn't really fit my temperament, just being in charge of, you know, one knob on the oscilloscope or something. Um, so I thought, how can I combine this thing that I love with this thing that I might be okay at? And I thought, well, maybe I could write about it. So I just got lucky. Um, at the time that I, you know, left college, um, again, eons ago, um, there were not that many many people who wanted to do science writing who had even a modicum of background in science. Um, many people who were covering science, especially at newspapers, had sort of migrated to that from covering general interest or politics or, or whatever. So it was a little bit unusual to have, again, even a little bit of a science background. So, you know, I got lucky, I got hired um, and never looked back. Um, and perhaps the irony is that just because of the way the different um, scientific disciplines have um, moved in the last uh, few decades, I probably have written less about physics than any of the other sort of broad fields of science, um, and what I mean by that is um, during my career, genetics and neuroscience, I would call out those two, um, have just exploded. And high energy particle physics 
no disrespect intended, has been in a little bit of a holding action since, you know, roughly the 80s. So, um, you know, the, the chips fall where they do. Um, and I've had to, you know, teach myself new areas of science, but with, you know, the best teachers in the world. That's the best thing about being a science reporter. Putting myself in, in, in my imagination in your shoes, and, and if I were you, I imagine you saying at this point, was there one moment where you realized you were going to leave physics behind and move on to writing about it? Was there a, an epiphany for you that you can remember? Very early in my days at Newsweek, because that was my first job, um, we did a story on uh, Carl Sagan, the late Carl Sagan. And I was told, go talk to everybody who knows him. And I got sent up to um, Harvard and MIT, where he had been before he then uh, wound up at Cornell. Um, and I just sort of knocked on people's doors. Um, and you know, suddenly I was talking to people I had heard of, and I sort of looked around and said, "Holy cow! I'm being paid to do this." Um, and you know, I knew that as a mere undergraduate or even a graduate student, I just would not have access to these amazing people. But, you know, with that reporter's credential, um, you know, God love them, um, they open their doors for you, um, for which I'm eternally grateful. So really, that was when I said, this is better than just being, you know, in the lab. That's great. And, and I know what you mean. When I was doing the science show, Scientific American Frontiers, which you did for 11 or 12 years, it was such a a wonderful education, and I was talking to the, some of the smartest people in the world, and anything I wanted to know about their work, they'd tell me. And in fact, one guy, we were underneath a mountain in Italy where he was looking for monopoles and neutrinos, and he was I think he was in the cave a long time under the mountain, and he kind of wanted to talk to other people. I asked him a question at 8 o'clock in the morning, and at lunch, at noon, he was still answering on the same sentence that he began at <laughs> 8 in the morning. So that was an example of hearing more than I asked, but it was another really much more important example of this chance that we have when we talk to scientists to hear things about nature that we don't know, that most people don't know. Definitely. And, and you feel uh, a sense of obligation because of that, that privilege that you have as a reporter, as a communicator, um, you know, if some busy person is taking half an hour, an hour, four hours, eight hours um, to, to talk to me, um, you know, different scientists have different agendas. But at bottom, they really wish to convey the, um, the love, the passion they have for their field, for their particular area of research to 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 the world, to the public, to you know, the students who are coming after, um, to policymakers. Um, so you always keep that in mind. Um, you know, we're not doing this for frivolous reasons. Um, and again, my eternal gratitude to scientists who recognize that part of the job, especially, of course, if they're getting um, taxpayer money funding their research, um, really part of the job is to share what they're doing with, you know, the public. How do you make sure that you get it right? I really admire you and others who take on the responsibility of of summarizing the science, reporting on it, 
not just asking a question and letting the science give the answer, which is all I do. And I, I, don't, I don't come near doing what you do, and I really admire it. But how do you police yourself? How do you make sure you haven't misunderstood it? Well, I certainly don't pretend that I've never made a mistake. But the, the basic answer to your question is um, actually something that scientists and journalists have in common, I think, namely that we we both want to get it first, right? I mean, there's competition in both fields. If you're going to discover something, i.e. be the first, you want to be the first. If you're the reporter, you want a story that no one else has. But again, just as scientists also want to get it right, so do reporters want to get it right. For most of the stories that I do, if there's a significant technical component, and certainly if I'm at all unsure about whether I got you know, this biochemical pathway right, or if it's this molecule or a different one, whatever, I will at minimum send back to the person who spoke to me chunks of the story. Here mm. is how I'm explaining this genome editing thing that you just did. Is this right? Um, and, you know, there are little annoyances, um, like somebody saying, oh, no, I don't really want to say that, um, which is why I don't return, I don't send back quotes. I tape my interviews. And if you said it, uh, if you said it, you said it. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm not trying to make you look bad. Um, generally, people try to change their quotes because the quote made them sound like, I hope you're sitting down, a human being, um, as opposed to someone writing in a scientific journal. So that's not going to happen. Um, but, you know, when they say, oh, no, this is, you know, ATP ACE and not ATP, I'm like, thank you, because the last thing a reporter wants is to have that horrible italics at the bottom of the story saying, correction, colon, the original version of this story said this, but in fact, it's that. So we're all on the same page here. We want to get it right. And you have so much to write about, especially now during the COVID pandemic. The, there's research piling on top of research. How do you make a choice what to cover? So by one count, um, since roughly January, the, the start of the pandemic, although, of course, it began in China in late 2019, there have been 5,000 preprints alone related to COVID-19. Um, preprints, of course, are the papers that get put up on uh, servers. They have not been peer reviewed. They have not been even submitted to a journal usually. They're just really fast uh, communications. And at a time like this, the idea is that you get out information as quickly as possible because typically journals will take months, sometimes more than a year to publish something. and uh, during a pandemic, obviously, there's a great need to know as much as possible as soon as possible. Um, so that, you know, 5,000 just preprints, um, probably a comparable number of papers that have been actually published in journals, that's a fire hose that we're all trying desperately to drink out of. How do you do it? What, what, how do you go about it? So I, STAT covers health and biomedical research across the board. Stat is stat is the publication year. Yes, we cover health, healthcare policy and politics, and biomedical research. Um, so my brief within that larger universe is fairly specific. I cover the research part of it, not really the the public health, the politics, the policy. So I'm looking for things that move the needle. Um, just to give you a few examples, you know, I've done stories on how 
wastewater monitoring can be an early signal that a community has COVID-19 spreading. This is a fascinating piece you wrote. I, I wanted to, that's the next thing I wanted to ask you about. T- tell me what the finding was that you wrote about, and then I want to hear what's happened since then. Is it, is it now about to be used, or is it being used to try to predict where the next outbreak will be? First, first of all, how does it work? Right. So it turns out that this respiratory virus also attacks cells in the GI tract. Anything that's in cells in the gastrointestinal tract is going to come out. Um, And back in February or March, um, and this also was a preprint, so again, not peer-reviewed, not published in a journal, um, researchers said, hey, we think we're seeing a signal in wastewater that we can detect the viral genome. And guess what? At the time we detected it, there were almost no cases in Boston. This was done at a, at a wastewater treatment plant um, near the city. Um, so that was, um, again, with a preprint, you as a reporter have to be pretty careful because it doesn't have the sort of stamp of approval that comes with peer review and publication. So what you do is just call other people in the field and say, hey, here's this paper. Could you look at it for me? Does it seem right? Does it seem, you know, at least plausible enough that I won't look stupid if I write about it? So the answer basically was yes. So I had seen that. Um, and the the short version is that this disease is so difficult to control in large part because people who have no symptoms or no symptoms yet can still transmit it, right? That suggests that if you could somehow get a signal that people have this disease, again, no symptoms, but they're infected, if you could get an early warning, then you could do things like at, at the extreme lockdowns, but at least monitoring, at least you know closer monitoring of people, tracing their contacts, just telling public health officials, guess what, there's COVID-19 in Boston. Anyway, so that research has continued. And to answer your question, Alan, um, uh, a number of water treatment uh, utilities in the United States have started to do it. Um, they're sending samples to one particular company here in Boston called Biobot. Um, Germany, the Netherlands, and a few other countries in Europe are also doing this kind of sampling, again, so that they get a heads up on when cases are about to explode. So if at minimum, for instance, you could tell your hospitals, guess what, we see this wave coming, it would be a good idea to figure out your ICU capacity, your ventilator capacity, before people start getting brought in on gurneys. So wastewater surveillance, as as it's called, seems to be something that really could make a difference. When we come back, science journalist Sharon Begley tells me how she does it, how she turns the painstaking and often frustrating work of medical researchers into riveting stories right after this. Our program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation with a mission to advance science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is implemented internationally through a constellation of Kavli Institutes that support scientists who conduct basic, curiosity-driven research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience, 
and also by the Kavli Prize, which honors scientists for breakthroughs in these fields that transform our understanding of the very big, astrophysics, the very small, nanoscience, and the very complex, neuroscience. And the mission of the Kavli Foundation is also implemented by programs that support public engagement with science, enhancing how society encounters, interacts with science, and uses science in their daily lives. I want to thank all of you who have signed up to support Clear and Vivid on Patreon. It really helps us to bring you conversations with some of the most interesting people out there. Along with our sponsors, you make Clear and Vivid possible. If you haven't become a patron yet, here's how it works. If you visit patreon.com slash clearandvivid, you can subscribe for as little as $2 a month to get advanced news about coming shows and get listed on our virtual wall of generous benefactors, and there's even a modest bit of swag. If you go for a higher level of support, there's a lot of fun stuff coming your way. Videos and audio clips of moments with our guests that were fascinating but didn't make it into the show. Bonus episodes of behind-the-scenes chat as my producer Graham Chet and I put the shows together. Plus, for our top subscribers, a monthly video conference with me. That's been a wonderful experience. I love meeting the thoughtful, engaged people who listen to our podcast. And I'll even record a personalized voicemail message for your mobile phone. If you'd like to know more, just go to patreon.com slash clearandvivid. And remember, you don't have to become a patron to keep listening to the show. You can continue to listen for free. But you can get an awful lot of fun extras if you do become a subscriber. And most importantly, your patronage directly funds our work with the Aldous Center for Communicating Science. So join us at patreon.com slash clearandvivid. That's patreon.com slash clearandvivid. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney Bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Sharon Begley. Your expertise at storytelling is really remarkable. You know, I was diagnosed with Parkinson's about five years ago, 
And so I'm interested in anything I read about Parkinson's. But you you did an article about the secret story behind an experiment that was riveting from the first sentence, and it kept building like a good story does. If you can, give me what went through your head as you were writing the story. How did you, what were you thinking as you constructed it so that you didn't just say the end at the beginning, and yet you 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 made me know it was worth reading. Well, thank you. Um, so let me try to give you the short-ish version. Um, so this was work done by scientists at Massachusetts General Hospital and um, an affiliate of um, MGH and Harvard Medical School. And the basic idea was take cells from a patient with Parkinson's disease, turn them into what are called pluripotent stem cells, which is a technique that won the Nobel Prize in 2012, and then turn those stem cells into brain dopamine neurons, which are the ones that tend to be lost or dysfunctional in Parkinson's. So you do all that in your lab dish, and then you inject those suckers into the patient. Um, So when I heard that these scientists were doing this, I thought, huh, that's interesting. That's something that has been a dream um, ever since the stem cell Um, ever since stem cell biology took off roughly 10 years ago, um, I wonder how it went. But then when I was told that the Parkinson's patient had approached the scientist saying, could you do this for me? And here's a boatload of money to do it. I thought, huh, that's even more unusual. Um, So it just felt from the get-go that I had a good tail, as it were. Um, And so I just uh, spent certainly more time than I do on sort of a typical you know, study story to really get at the bottom of this. Um, and they mentioned a few things sort of just sort of off the cuff that made me think this was almost a, um, I mean, this was almost a caper movie, um, how they had to get the cells from Boston to New York, um, how the air ambulance, you know, at first didn't work, how once they got on the ground in New Jersey to, and were going across Um, the bridge to Weill Cornell to do the implant, the ambulance driver was not allowed to turn on his siren because they weren't carrying a sick person. They were just carrying these cells that were going to expire if he didn't, you know, really floor it. Um, Anyway, so it was things like that um, that made me think um, this would be a way to draw readers along. Um, And, you know, in this age of Uh, attention spans that don't go past a single screen or, you know, a few seconds, unfortunately, Um, there really is a premium on grabbing readers early. Um, You know, our editors um, tell us that if readers, you know, aren't interested, they're not going to swipe up to see the rest of your story. Um, Many people read our stories on, uh, you know, uh, mobile technology. Um, So, you know, you just try your best to bring out the characters, um, and the patient really was and is a character, and just describe these things that you never imagine scientists doing, like going to a lab in the dead of night and, you know, whisking these cells across town and, you know, all these other crazy things. And and what I loved in, in terms of storytelling was you didn't just get me interested in the beginning. You kept me interested because they had to keep overcoming the obstacles that were thrown in their path. The guy couldn't couldn't do his siren. The the bridge was crowded. The, the, the plane they couldn't. The plane almost didn't take off. I forget all the details, but they had to overcome these obstacles. 
And nothing keeps us involved more than that, I think. I mean, it's really cinematic, right? I mean, I don't know if, uh, you know, directors keep this in mind consciously, um, let alone whether writers do. But I think there's a recognition um, for all of us who are both readers and viewers that as um, something visual or as something, you know, in words goes along, um, even if it's inherently interesting, attention, you know, sort of flags. And after you know, a certain number of minutes or after a certain number of words, you want something to wake up the audience, something to wake up the readers. So um, when I'm writing something like this, I just keep that in mind and try as hard as I can to throw in something surprising or crazy or whatever so that the reader will say, oh, wow, that's a cool thing. I wonder what the next cool thing will be. And again, you know, you're just carrying them along. It sounds like you keep in mind what the reader is going through as they read what you write? I am under no illusions that people are hanging on my every word. (laughs) (laughs) I hope that what I write is interesting and maybe even important to their lives. But no, I absolutely recognize that I have um, an obligation to the reader, that it's a privilege to me that they are reading what I write. And that, you know, if at the end of the day or the week or the month, hardly anybody is reading what I wrote or spending very little time on it, then, you know, I should be in some other line of work. Um, So, yeah, I mean, you just do the best you can and you respect the reader's time. I was very interested to see in a talk you gave your analysis of why we don't hear more from women scientists. What are some of the factors? It sounded like some of the factors were systemic and some were um, improvements that women scientists could make in their own self-presentation. I would t- tell me more about that. Right. So the underrepresentation of women in science um, has been a- an issue and r- really um, a scandal for many, many years. And that, of course, carries over into the stories that journalists tell about scientists. When I am looking for an expert on something, um, I go to, for instance, review papers. Um, These are uh, papers published in journals that take a step back and say, huh, where is CRISPR genome editing now? Just what's the sort of the lay of the land? Um, Because that person who has done all that work to figure that out will be a great source for me if I want, again, just sort of a general picture. Well, it turns out that journal editors, and you know, I'm sure we're all shocked at this, um, have historically asked male scientists to do those review papers. So that feeds on itself. Men are asked to do the papers, reporter finds the review papers, reporter quotes male scientists. So that's one issue. Now I'm gonna offer you a couple more explanations, which are, are tricky to say because it sounds like I'm making excuses for myself and other reporters, but for what it's worth, um, I unfortunately have found that women scientists are more circumspect, if that's the right word, about speaking on topics outside their particular narrow field of research. Um, If, let's say, we're we're talking about Parkinson's disease, um, that has a lot of you know, sort of uh, threads. Um, somebody might be looking at the basic neurobiology. Somebody is working on treatments. 
but within treatments, there's pharmacological treatments and there's deep brain stimulation. Anyway, so as you know, there are just a lot of threads within Parkinson's disease. So if I ask for someone to speak about this particular bit of Parkinson's, but they work on another bit, um, it's just unfortunately been my experience that women scientists are more likely to say, no, that's not exactly what I do, so I don't feel comfortable talking to you. Men, on the other hand, are happy to flap their lips about anything. So again, um, sexist, gendered comment, I'm sorry, um, but that's what I have seen. Um, and the other unfortunate thing, um, and I think it explains uh, why women scientists are underrepresented in science stories as well, um, is that at least I personally um, seem to have a harder time getting them to just carve out the time needed to talk to me. Um, again, um, widely described how women scientists within academic departments get pile, piled on them, all sorts of sort of administrative work, whatever. So their time um, is stretched even more than male scientists. Um, so as I said at the beginning, I'm not using those as excuses. Um, and I and other science journalists have become really, really even more tuned to those issues than we had been before. Um, so we're all trying to do better. One of the things that uh, you've written about, I find very interesting. Uh, actually, everything you've written about, I find interesting. But especially so, the uh, the book you wrote called Change Your Mind, Change Your Brain, because y you, you seem to cover a lot of research that has explored the value of plasticity in our brain, how our brain is constantly being changed by the environment. And I, I get the impression that when you wrote the book, which was not long ago, it was only about six years ago. Uh, that one was 2007, actually. Time flies. <laughs> yeah. So I get the impression that at that time, the rest of science wasn't, wasn't getting on the bandwagon. Has that changed? Yes. So neuroplasticity, of course, is the idea that the brain, the adult brain, can change in structure and function. Um, and that really was a heretical idea for, you know, throughout the era of modern brain research, which I would date from sort of the mid-1900s until maybe the first few years of this century, this millennium. Um, the idea was that once you reach the ripe old age of three or so, your brain was basically done. Yes, you know, you would learn things um, and the biological basis of learning is synapse formation in the brain. So that happened and that's a change. But in terms of, you know, how much of the brain's real estate was devoted to this activity or that activity, what the key underlying connections were, again, those were thought to have been done, finished, you know, let's move on, um, soon after birth. So when the first scientists began collecting data showing that no, in fact, the adult brain can change, um, they faced enormous pushback. Um, and then what we saw was that there was a sort of acceptance that if you receive uh, certain sensory input, if you're, let me take a simpler example. If you're blind um, from birth, then the signals, you know, that should be coming through your retina, down through the switching stations in the middle of the brain, 
back to the visual cortex, the visual cortex is not getting any signals. So that's a huge chunk of the brain. That's about a third of your brain that's sitting there with nothing to do. So it turns out that in people who are blind from birth, um, the visual cortex switches jobs and it instead can do um, hearing, it can do touch sensation. Um, so, you know, just think about that a second. This huge basic, you know, like how much more basic can you get than the visual cortex has completely switched jobs. Um, and that was because of the absence of sensory input. So that was the first sort of grudging recognition that the adult brain can change. Um, but then there was a sort of second round to this. And the question was, can thoughts, can mere thoughts change the structure function of the brain? Now you're getting really interesting. So what, tell me about that. So um, the book that you uh, mentioned um, came about because of a meeting that the Dalai Lama had with Western scientists. So I am no expert on Buddhism, certainly no expert on meditation, but just, you know, at the Cliff Notes level, um, Buddhism believes that mental practice can change the physical structure of the brain. So the whole notion of neuroplasticity sort of resonated with the Dalai Lama, who from childhood has been interested in science and engineering and things like that. That's a whole nother story. Anyway, so he brought together these Western scientists. I attended that meeting in Dharamsala, which of course is um, the, the headquarters of the Tibetan government in exile. Um, and use that as a jumping off point for the book. And the Dalai Lama tells a story of where he went to a, an American medical school and he witnessed, with the uh, consent of the patient and the physicians, a, a brain operation. And so after that, he was talking to the surgeons and saying, you know, I understand from my neurobiology friends that our thoughts and feelings um, all come from the firing of neurons in our brain, um, these electrical signals, these chemical signals, connections here and there, etc. Um, so this physical stuff gives rise to consciousness and everything else, thought, emotion. But here's what I always wondered, the Dalai Lama said to the brain surgeons, can it work the other way around? Can our thoughts and feelings feed back on those neurons and those connections and change them in some way? So the neurosurgeon said, oh, no, 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 it doesn't work that way, impossible, but, you know, nice of you to ask. Anyway, it turns out um, that, indeed, um, sustained mental practice can change the, the connections in the brain. Let me give you just one simple example, Alan. Um, so there was a study at Harvard in which half the volunteers um, played every day, five days, um, a couple of hours a day on a piano keyboard. Um, they played the same sequence of notes over and over and over again. And at the end of the study, it turns out that the brain region that controlled those fingers had gotten larger. Okay, so there's an example of an activity that you do had changed the brain. So the scientists had an equal number of people just sit at the keyboard and think about playing. So they made sure that their fingers were not moving a muscle, all sorts of controls, etc. And you probably guessed the punchline, um, at the end of the same five days, the people who had only thought about moving their finger had the same expansion of the motor cortex as the people who had actually done so. So that was one of the key, and there are many, many others like this, um, experiments showing that 
mere thought, and we should certainly put mere in scare quotes, um, can act back on the physical stuff of the brain. Anyway, so, you know, that has opened a whole, you know, world of potential therapeutics, um, um, you know, obsessive compulsive disorder, depression, Tourette's, um, all sorts of things. Um, and, you know, arguably that's how psychotherapy, when it works, does work, that you're taught to think about your thoughts and feelings differently. And again, it's just thought, um, but somehow it's made a difference, um, which can be picked up on fMRI and PET scans and everything else, which indeed show that when it's successful, when people have learned to think about their thoughts differently, um, their brain has changed. So the question that's knocking at my door is, in the years since you wrote the book, have you engaged in practices yourself to change your brain through thinking? I've had that question before, which will not surprise you. And my answer is still that when it becomes safe, and this is a pre-pandemic answer, but this is my answer, when it becomes safe to meditate on the A-train, then, you know, put me down for that. But other than that, um, I am just one of these people who feel I don't have time to engage in serious meditation. That might change one day, um, but so far I'm just an outsider looking in. <laughs> well, I got to tell you, you've changed my brain just by talking to you. I, I've really enjoyed this conversation. We, we, we usually end our conversations with seven quick questions that invite seven quick answers. Are you, are you game for that? Let's go for it. Okay. What do you wish you really understood? How the brain works. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? I ask, how do you know this thing that you think you know? <laughs> What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Hmm. Why do you want to talk to me? <laughs> oh, the scientist you call gives you that question. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Hmm. I have not figured out a solution to that. Yeah, your description of the scientist going on for 12 minutes. I should work on that. <laughs> Let's say you're at a dinner party, you're sitting next to someone you don't know. How do you start up a real conversation with that person? I probably fall back on the old, so what do you do with your days? Sort of a version of what's your job, but I hope a more courteous one. And maybe more revelatory. Perhaps, yes. What gives you confidence? The scientific method. And you apply it to your daily life? I try to be an evidence-based person, um, which is not to say that I'm not just as swayed by emotion as everybody else, but at least I try to keep that as my lodestar. Last question. What book changed your life? Absalom, Absalom, which is a William Faulkner book, um, and it taught me the power of words. Whoa. Well, you sure use them great. Thank you, Sharon. Thank you, Alan. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. 
you keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Sharon Begley is the senior science writer for STAT, the publication of the Boston Globe that covers stories related to the life sciences. Her stories appear regularly in Scientific American as well. She's the author of several books on the mind and brain, including Can't Just Stop, An Investigation of Compulsions. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Carla Schatz. Her work on how our brains wire themselves up led her to a startling idea. We know that young brains can learn more rapidly and remember more rapidly. And I have this dream uh, because when I was a child, I, I did learn French, but I learned it when I was in high school and I could never speak French without an accent. So my dream is, what if I could just go back to those early developmental critical periods of learning, you know, turn that, those mechanisms back on, make an old brain young, and then I could learn French without an accent. Oh, make an old brain young. I, I wonder why this is a conversation I was really looking forward to. Next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.